paper might be a little bit different, uh, but what I'm sure what I'm trying to do in it is to um, articulate an argument that I've been trying to work out for for a while now, and it's really my it's my first sort of go at thinking a bit more about um, positionality and thinking about some of my own background and um, identity as a researcher because really up until now I've uh, tried to sort of like hide a little bit maybe like in the shadows of like if I can get away with without doing this then actually that's that actually suits me a little bit um, but I've come to the stage now where I'm either not able to or I'm not or, or not willing to not too sure which one is which or which came first um, so it is it will be a little bit uh, autobiographical at times and you know I, I always sort of think of it I always like the idea of sort of, and I talk about what you know, and so I'm going to use a, a bit of a case study almost um, on uh, disability and research, and in particular thinking about the disabled researcher and the disabled academic, and then where this friction between um, integrity and uh, um, rigor comes from. Okay, um, so I was printing this out. I, it, uh, in my office on Wednesday on our, on our like, shared printer and someone picked it up first and they were like um, 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 integrity versus rigor that's deep man and it's like <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> you, should, you should like come along right so um, now I'm really conscious that so far we've had all of these um, uh, amazing and the contemporary papers from our first three speakers. On my first slide, I mentioned Durkheim, right? <laughs> and uh, like, I was saying at the break, like I use like a lot of Bourdieu, like in my work, who's like a dead Frenchman, but like Durkheim is like way deader, right? <laughs> so much, right? He died during World War One for God's sake. So, um, but and I definitely do not want to stand here and give you like a lecture or a whistle stop tour of the history of method from 1896 up until 2019. Um, I promise, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit in my tongue in cheek here in terms of this idea of like uh, in the dawn of time. But the reason why I think it's important to think about Durkheim and to also to think about Max Weber is that particularly whenever we teach methods, um, they're still sort of taught within this binary idea of the, the two main um, ontologies and epistemologies. You're either a positivist or your interpretivist, or that's where we start whenever we actually talk about methods with students. And whenever, also certainly as ECRs um, and PhD students and ED students, we do still actually think about these very like, um, like technical terms and try to actually figure out where we're actually going with this, right? And so in terms of the, the um, two main texts, you know, in, term, in terms of like how we think about method now, from the, the um, like positivist side from Durkheim's the rules of sociological method, and then from the interpretivist side, Weber's essay, um, uh, Objectivity in Social Science and Social Policy. And really, I mean, whenever we, again, when we like think about method, and we, and we, and we talk about it with students and so on, I mean, positivism is about explanation, where um, interpretivism is about understanding, it's social facts, or it's meaningful social action, it's predictability or probable action, but a natural scientific approach uh, or a scientific method, but where they where they both meet is this where like um, Durkheim argues that we have to um, abandon all preconceptions, and where Weber argues that we should strive towards uh, value neutrality 
is this idea that we're still trying to be really scientific and to have legitimacy in our research, we should have this value neutrality that and like Jess was on my trash earlier on, and I, I agree with you, right? Okay. Down with these sort of yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Being sure, come on, right? But um, this is still sort of how we actually think about good method and being able to uh, claim validity and being able to actually claim something is that we have this sort of idea around value neutrality and our, our um, abandoning all preconceptions. This is really where we get into issues around rigor. In my perspective, anyway. And so, the way that we achieve rigor, right, is through uh, employing lots and lots of methods with really strict um, protocols and rules, right, that help us to sort of really actually oversee the um, validity. So, what I argue, though, is that these rules are often based on ableist assumptions and requirements, okay? So, they actually, they actually, they, um, they require academics and researchers to actually be very, very um, specific people. And even though um, the development of method, so again from where, you know, uh, from the um, qualitative school has gone through um, uh, lots of iterations, the rules that qualitative method still follows are quite colonial and quite ableist. Okay. So even though maybe like this is more like a like positivist and, and uh, scientific, I would argue that I think so. Hopefully you'd agree with me that within um, a qualitative research, we actually still have these rules which um, uh, demand something very specific from the academic or from the researcher. And then again, even though uh, you know there is this thing where um, a qualitative research nearly has to like apologise for not being quantitative, right? And so the <laughs> The and like classic on my question in the Viva, if you're qualitative, is but can you really and like generalize this? And you're like, well, no, I can't because I, I don't need to. And then the, uh, the, the, the examiner goes, oh yeah, yeah, fair enough, and then moves on with the exam, right? But we still have to like, you know, sort of, sort of just like recognize our limitations because we're still judged with within the, like quantitative metrics. And so even with the like shifts away from the um, uh, validity and uh, reliability metrics for um, a qualitative method. So where um, like Hammersley talks about um, uh, consistency, Lewis and Ritchie talk about being well-grounded, um, or Lincoln and Gubba, which is one of the really big ones, which lots of people use around if research is trustworthy or not, right? And so it's about credibility, transferability, uh, um, uh, dependability, and confirmability. Um, these, these actually haven't got away from this problem, right? So they're still about demonstrating rigor and legitimacy from the um, like positivist demand. So it's not actually a different way of doing something. It's just a different way of packaging it, right? And so in particular with the um, like Lincoln and um, uh, Gubba method, they do talk about um, like stepwise replication. Actually, you know, can you do it over and over and over again and get a similar result? Which to me is no different than the only demands about what is a reliable on the quantitative project. So I don't really see a difference between those. Um, they talk about um, inquiry audits as well, where you're going in and making sure that all of these things are done in a very, in a very, only precise and um, a consistent way of doing research. Which again strikes me as actually being quite um, uh, um, 
uh, positivist. And so, but these, these audit measures, these um, uh, assessment criteria, are usually non-negotiable, right? Especially for ECRs and for PhD students, right? You have to follow these. And so there is this, this demand of us that, that we actually, if we're going to do research, it, it needs to hit these things in order to be deemed to have rigor, or if you're an ECR or a student, just actually deemed worthy enough, worthy enough for the viva, or worthy enough for, for the exam. And so, I mean, obviously, one of the big, one of the, one of the, one of the very welcome um, uh, departures from this type of approach is then, is then, I'm like standpoint epistemology and this focus around, around, I'm like situated knowledge, right? And so whether it's an like standpoint uh, feminist methodology or I'm like critical race theory or um, critical disability studies, and so we're veering a little bit away from this. Um, and these approaches have been very heavily critiqued on the grounds of not having rigor or not. Not, not being able to actually give us valid data, right? And so one of the really um, prominent um, uh, critiques comes from Hammersley, where he argues about, uh, well, obviously it's a man arguing about feminist methodology, first of all, but um, where he's arguing about how, how could you possibly replace method for experience, right? And sort of things like this. And how, again, even these types of methods don't actually meet the um, demands of rigor. Now, these types of approaches have a number of different um, defenses for these critiques, right? So, um, epistemological um, priorities. If you deem the legitimate knowledge to be the unlike female-centered experience, then that's actually what you're looking for, and so this this gives you some cover. Um, if your if your method is focusing on um, emancipation, again, what your what the actual end goal is can trump your methods, right? But also, and this is where, this is my problem with standpoint epistemologies, and this is maybe where I'll get into trouble later on, I'm not too sure. What, they, what, they, what, what these um, epistemologies also have on, on their favour is that they can still illustrate rigour via method. They can still use some of the older methods in order to, set, in order to almost try and rebalance things, right, in terms of using those older methods that have the strict protocols. And they can also find um, legitimacy through uh, meeting some of those demands in terms of trustworthiness, for example, okay? And so, whilst standpoint epistemologies um, uh, are a very different way of doing research and do get and critiqued around having, uh, around are they actually able to, find, to demonstrate rigor, um, they also have a way out from these different things, including actually uh, relying on the tools of the people who would actually be criticizing them. Okay, so there is a, a bit of cover. The problem being that not all um, uh, unlike standpoint epistemological um, positions or unlike sub-schools within research have this luxury that these epistemologies have. So in particular, what I mean is disabled academics and d d disabled researchers, okay? And so, in a way, the argument I'm trying to make, I hope, is quite straightforward, is that the only defences that other, other uh, standpoint epistemologies have don't immediately translate over to us, okay, as d d disabled researchers. So, rules of method are often ableist, and the criteria to assess research are also ableist. And what I mean by that is they expect or demand or assume uh, sight, hearing, 
fluency in speech, um, I mean, normative ideas around mental health, and also mobility. And so, as a result of this, uh, disabled academics have to have to employ increased uh, labour in order to actually try and match them. Okay, so there's this idea around passing, for example, right? And so, um, sort of, as someone who uh, stammers, which 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 would be my disability. One of my um, like strategies around passing is I'll always insist on phoning someone on my mobile. So if I'm stammering, they just think it's bad reception, right? And sometimes people are like, I can't hear you at all. It's almost impossible to understand you. It's like, well, thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, oh, it's really, really bad reception. So there's these different ways of actually, of actually trying to pass, right? And there's also um, uh, increased labor as well in terms of trying to um, uh, compete with non-disabled colleagues, okay? So the extra hours which are put in um, in order to actually still meet those, those same uh, neoliberal metrics around teaching preparation, around giving lectures, around writing, uh, things like that. Also, there's a limit to research and to di uh, dissemination. And also an expectation that we actually specialize in areas related to our disability. Okay, so that's that's that, that's another big one. Now, as someone who I've, I don't I don't study disability, I've never studied disability before, but I just got too pissed off being a d d disabled academic to not actually talk about it. So, but there is an expectation that 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 we actually will specialise, and in a way, we get like a little bit of an out for it because if we're talking about something and we also have a disability in that, there is a little bit of leeway, I guess, in terms of if you're actually then going to study that thing. And so, um, my, my sort of question is though, but why should we, why are disabled academics uh, required to do this, just for the sake of rigour, just for the sake of some uh, predetermined set of criteria about what makes good research or bad research? Because what it does is, it does, it does it does strike at the heart of integrity as researchers. So should we be essentially going through all of this, all this additional labor, um, anxiety and pain uh, in order to pass, right? Or should actually rigor be, be a bit more malleable, be a bit more bendy or flexible? Or, you know, basically, um, who should blink first, right? In terms of how we actually do research. And I think that's, that's absolutely key in terms of thinking about um, integrity in research is whenever our identity um, uh, doesn't fit into those, those, those preset um, um, uh, conditions of method, should we actually just be told that you can't do that? Or should you be able to actually do the research and how the research is assessed or, or how, how research uh, is carried out is then actually allowed to be that bit more flexible, if that makes sense. So what I want to do is just to give a little case study of some of the research I did uh, and ways that I did it um, and the um, like dilemmas, I suppose, actually that I, that I faced. So as I was saying, or as I already said earlier on, so my, my disability would be around speech. And so in terms of like a nice little definition for stammering, so it's seen as being a speech disorder where you have trouble um, at producing a normal flow of speech, okay? And so it affects um, communication. It, it's often known as fluency. So if you can say like, like a whole sentence in one go, then that's fluent. And so things that, that uh, 
people do, for example, is they opt for different or more easy to say words, right? And so uh, I was saying last night at dinner that as a kid, uh, I loved profiteroles and I was willing to go through the humiliation of saying 15 p's or however it was because they're just too yummy to, to not but other times you would you, you would just opt for um, uh, different words or easier to say words and so in terms of some of the um, the research on stammering so uh, Acton and Heard who both do stammering so they're really interested in this research. They talked about some of the main theories around stammering. So whether it's a neurotic disorder, or uh, it's a learned behavior, or it's a physiological problem, or the three main sort of uh, understandings uh, around it. But it's also interesting in terms, so they also go on and talk about stuff, um, work from the uh, mayor, who gives an account of why some of these disabilities like stammering, people don't really care about them, because it's, it's seen as being such a subtle manifestation that uh, it's not that interesting to academics. And so things like, like stammering, uh, it's more acceptable to, to make fun of someone than it would be if someone had a problem uh, with sight or if they were deaf or if they were partially deaf because it's not, it's, not as, it's not as large a manifestation, so it's up for ridicule. It's basically... Uh, Emmett Lemur's argument, and I, I would agree with that. And so, from experience, not that I think it's a good idea, but and so, but there is because of that. There's then all this some like stigma and I'm like shame, I suppose, actually um, around stammering. And so, as a result, you get what uh, Butler, not Judith Butler, um, but Claire Butler from Newcastle University, where she talks about um, identity cloaking. So you avoid social situations. You forestall a phrase and you switch words or you use shorter words and phrases. And as a result, you can appear shy, inarticulate and uninformed. Three things you don't want in a researcher, <laughs> right? You really don't want them or in a job interview or anything like that. And so, like, you know, what are you, what are you meant to do, right? Like this isn't, a, you know, this doesn't strike me as a, as a, I'm a qualitative researcher. Like if you read any, any methods book and it says, well, first of all, what you have to do is like um, form a rapport with someone. And it's like, oh, great, yeah. So let's be really outward, and I'll be great. I'll be talking with this person. That's that's seen as something which is almost like a normal everyday thing. And how could you possibly not do that? Well, actually, if you can't get words out, then all of a sudden, even the very basic things are around method. Um, uh, actually actually they become quite difficult and so one of the key things for me as a researcher anyway is this um, fascination or preoccupation with uh, repetition um, uh, ironically and or, or um, uh, continuity within method okay and so a lot of them the qualitative method focuses on continuity uh, in order to then actually um, illustrate um, validity or uh, um, reliability. And so I'm just going to share with you very briefly the way I did my research. So I used uh, biographical narrative interview method, um, which is comes from the school of, 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 of life history research, but it has a very strict way of doing the actual research. So a biographical narrative, a biographical narrative interview method uh, interview has three stages, where you, the first uh, stage, 
you just ask a really a really open question and tell me about your life and then you're not allowed to speak until the actual um, person has finished um, uh, their answer and it, it can take like 15 minutes or it can take two hours just depends on who's talking and you're not allowed it's really it, it's a, it, it is a really interesting way of doing, doing research you're not allowed any physical or verbal gestures in order to send someone down any particular pathway and the only thing that you can do is if someone has lost their train of thought after 90 minutes you can tell them the last thing that they said but it must be in the exact order that they that they said it okay uh, and then session two which is done in the same sitting you can only ask for more clarification about what someone's talked about but you can only talk about it in the order that they've said it and in the um, uh, precise words that they've said it. It's all about um, uh, preserving the gestalt of the interview. Okay, and then the third session comes way later, whenever you've actually analysed the research, or, or sorry, when you've actually analysed the the findings, and then you can go back and do more traditional semi-structured interview if you want to. Now, people used to joke because they're hilarious. This really suits you, here, you know, because you, you actually can't talk here. That, that's actually really good for you. All you have to do is say one sentence and then you can be quiet for hours. And it's like, yeah, it's hilarious. Um, so, <laughs> um, but the problems for someone who stammers is that I can't do the exact repetition of words. I can't do it. Like, that's why I don't have a script today because I couldn't say it even if I wanted to. So you can't, you, you can't uh, rely on being able to actually say things all the time. There's, and within this method, and within lots of methods in terms of continuity, there's no room for um, uh, word replacement or um, um, a linguistic uh, negotiation because words have meaning, right? And so you can't just change something because you can't um, actually be able to say it. And so uh, even though I've various different strategies around speech, there is still always like a massive state of anxiety. So you're going and doing all these interviews, your funding is based on getting all of these interviews or you're a researcher or whatever and it's your job and you might be able to get it done but you're going to be massively panicked about it the whole time because you have to be able to um, stick uh, within these rules. And so if a method demands fluency, should I just have not done it? Like, am I actually, am I, am I actually, uh, losing some of my integrity as a researcher because I've opted to do a method that I have no business doing according to the rules of the method. If I want to retain rigor, should I not have done that? Should I have just learned numbers and sent out lots and lots of questionnaires and sat in my home with like a two-screen laptop or something like that and running SPSS, right? So, and that, you know, it's that's, 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 this is the, even though this is like a very unspecific example, um, this is the dilemma that uh, disabled researchers face all the time, and I think also other researchers as well. But this, uh, but this is sort of my my um, uh, case study. And so the reason I guess for this, I argue anyway, is that there's still this preoccupation with being able to mirror the natural sciences within within social research. And so even if you do do go away from the like, like positivist and um, interpretivist tropes, you're still harking back to how close can, can I get to this? Can I still unconvince someone who's reading my bid 
or who's marking my, my thesis, right? Or who's, or who's uh, reading my article, which is under review. Can I still show them enough that, that, actually, we do, that actually we do have rigor? And so it's in this hurry to apologize for not meeting those demands that I think a lot of um, uh, ways of doing research kind of leaves us, sort of leaves some of the lesser thought about uh, subgroups behind, I suppose, in terms of actually doing research. And so, um, you know, I think things that, that, that we need in order to, to try and rebalance that demand about whether it's integrity or whether it's rigor is to just actually trust the researchers, uh, right? And actually have, have some faith in them that it's the endpoint of data via different routes is actually still quite legitimate. It's about allowing people uh, to include their own identity within the research. Now, of course, you know, that's all, that's all good and, uh, you know, that's great and everything, but like, I was, the research I was doing there was my PhD, and I didn't do any of this. So all the arguments I've made, I didn't do any of it. I hid and tried to pass as being a fluent researcher. And I never, it never came up in any discussions with my supervisor or in my viva or anything like that around, around speech because I was a PhD student. I had no power. I had no capital in order to say, maybe you should think about this differently. I'm trying to pass an exam here, right? So I have to stick to the really, really strict rules um, around rigor. And so a lot of the stuff, a lot of the ways in which we assess um, qualitative research, I think is actually a false economy. And so um, being more flexible to... Uh, researchers who don't initially fit into those like, demands of rigor, which are, are written from a like, position of privilege. To most of you, speech isn't a privilege, but to me it is. So it's, um, it's about trying to sort of think about uh, how far can we actually push things either way, rather than just either opting out of research or trying really hard to pretend that you're not. So thank you.